Well, good morning, church. I am loud. That's the way I like it. I want to yell at you today. No. Uh, it, is, it is good to see you all today. How the New Year's resolution's going? You're looking skinner, skinnier, uh, thinner. Way to go. Keep after it. Um, I am not. I am, uh, I'm, I'm kind of slow to catch up, but uh, I'm going to lose a few pounds myself this year. You can hold me to that. This is my accountability. I'll preach about it every week. Um, <laughs> You know, actually, on the way in, uh, just now, walking from my car to the building, I had a first happen to me in my life. Um, a bird pooped on my shoulder. <laughs> and, I mean, it felt like a torpedo. It landed on my ear and splattered onto my shoulder. And uh, I texted Laura, right as that because they're coming to the later service. I was like, I hope this isn't an omen, you know, <laughs> for the day or for the year or anything like that. But it's... Uh, it, it's a crazy time, and uh, I'm glad to just kind of check that off my bucket list and move on with my life. So uh, we're kicking off a series today called Courageous Church, and this is about having the courage to stand strong for Christ in changing times. So uh, in recent years, I've been reflecting on this a lot, about how Christians and churches can faithfully follow Christ in our culture, which is changing all the time. Because these times that we're living in now are different than when I was a kid, and the times when I was a kid are different than my, when my parents were kids and so on. It's like there's a lot of change that's happening. And so I, I thought about Daniel as a model to follow because that was similar for Daniel. Daniel grew up as a Jewish kid in Jerusalem. And he was taken captive. Uh, the whole, you know, the, the city fell, the city of Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. He was taken captive and carried off to Babylon, which is a totally different culture, different language, different country, different everything. And while he was there, he rose to prominence and served the king. And then his son came to power, so he served that king. And then that son was killed. And then another king came into place from the Medes, Darius the Mede, and Daniel served under him. So Daniel, his life was uh, marked by faithfulness to God and many different iterations of a cultural uh, environment. So. In this series, I want to share some reflections with you about how I see the, the book of Daniel applying to our situation now and how churches and Christians can relate to the culture, to our world in this environment. Because how we relate to our culture, it's not an easy question, right? I mean, there's a lot of facets and nuances. This is not an easy question. And I'm not here to tell you, oh, here's an easy answer. I'm here to tell you that I think the book of Daniel gives us a helpful model to follow. And that's what we're going to look at. We'll process these further uh, throughout this series. And we'll talk about them in city groups and in other places. I hope to open up a conversation in our church while we uh, go through this series. So to kind of set up the context of this book, let me show you a graphic of a timeline of the Bible. That's not my artwork. <laughs> Actually, I Googled a simple timeline of the Bible, and uh, a lot of them were these complicated charts or whatever, and I'm like, I need something way more simple. And so this is what I found. Uh, but this is good, because it gives us a really broad picture of the history of the Bible. So um, we see Abraham, you know, the time of Abraham, we did Genesis last year. That's all the very, very beginning of the Bible. We have creation all the way through Abraham. And then God promised Abraham to make him into a great nation, right? And so that's what happened. God made Abraham into a great nation, which we know is the nation of Israel, but that developed through a period of time through the judges and then First uh, and Second Samuel into a monarchy under King David. So King David and his son Solomon, they ruled over this kingdom of Israel. And then after that, uh, the kingdom divided. Now, whenever it was a united kingdom, God, God had given a promise to them. Um, but I'll, and this is recorded back in the book of Deuteronomy, where God said, this is a covenant I'm making with you as a nation, as a, a, a family nation. But if you break covenant with me, then I want to take the nation away from you. I'll take the land away from you and send you off into exile. So if you know the book of, you know, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it all goes haywire. So after this kingdom, these glory days, there's this period from, it says David-exile. Um, over the next three, four hundred years, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. Um, and so first, first and Second Kings tells you the story of two kingdoms running parallel to one another. Um, and so it split, and over the next three or four hundred years, um, they, they disobeyed God, they were unfaithful, and then both nations 
uh, God gave them into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel went into exile in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judea, uh, they were faithful a little bit longer, not much longer, but a little bit longer. They were sent into exile in 586 BC. So now we have this period of time here, exile, uh, exile to the Messiah. So the period of time of exile, that's when, okay, there is no nation anymore. All of God's people are now being scattered throughout the surrounding nations and dispersed into various peoples. And that's where the book of Daniel picks up. So um, there's this, the idea here is that before the exile, there was a state religion in, uh, in Israel of Judaism, supported by a national government and also supported by the broader culture. But then in exile, they don't have that support anymore. They no longer have a, a culture and a nation that is supporting the religion. It's all just their, their faithfulness to God personally. So Daniel was a young man living in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judea right here in this 586 BC uh, period of time. So that's what happened to him. And this book of Daniel uh, begins with that transition. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. Daniel chapter 1. Let's dig in. Daniel chapter 1. We'll cover this whole chapter today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's Israel, or or that's uh, the people of God, the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, make note of that, and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pause here for a second. So here's where we are. After defeating Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar, his strategy was not to just kill all the people. Not to, he didn't want to kill all the POWs. He wanted to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian nation. So um, he would do this with a combination of a few things. He would use state power and cultural influence and a re-education program to basically deprogram these people from being Israelites, Jews, and reprogram them into being Babylonians. And he also tried to disassociate them from their family and the heritage of their religion. And he did this by giving them new names. So Daniel is a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name means God is my judge. He gave him the name Belteshazzar. That's a Babylonian name. And that name means Baal will protect the king. Baal being Babylonian God. I saw this movie as a kid, Emerald Forest. Some of you may may have seen this. Um, The movie tells the story of about a man who was working in this tribal area as some kind of contractor. Um, And so it was, you know, in a foreign country. And his kid was there with him, and somehow his kid wandered off and got abducted. And his kid was abducted by this um, indigenous people to that area. And so the father spent 10 years looking for his son, and he couldn't find him. You know, he looked everywhere, and finally, when he did find him, 10 years had gone by, and his son had been raised by one of these tribes. So he's a little boy, five years old or so, and then he finds him again, and now he's like 15 years old. So when he saw him, at that time, it's like he had dressed like them. He had forgotten his language. He couldn't even speak his dad's language anymore. Um, And he had become a a warrior. He was part of this tribe. He even got a new father. And he called him father. And he said, you know, whenever they're speaking their indigenous language, they're having this conversation. The kid's like, I recognize this guy. And the father said, well, 
you know that man as daddy, <laughs> but I am your father. You know, so it's like he, this kid was totally assimilated into this tribe. Um, and so he was, it was completely different for him. He had, he had completely changed. That was kind of Nebuchadnezzar's strategy with these guys. Now, in the movie after that, I don't really know what happens. You can rent it, but I'm sure it's interesting, so check it out sometime. But, but it's a fascinating story. I at least remember that much of it from a kid. All right, now let's keep going. Let's look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's a good thing in that time. Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So they took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. <clears throat> so despite Nebuchadnezzar's re-education efforts, Daniel and his friends resisted this assimilation strategy. And they remained faithful to God. Now, we don't know exactly why, of all the things that they were required to do, why the king's food was where they planted their flag in the ground and said, we will not budge on this issue. But they decided that this was their point of resistance. We don't know why, but I'll read to you an explanation from the ESV Study Bible, and I find this helpful. Here's, this is from the ESV Study Bible. It says, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture, which was the king's goal with these conquered subjects. With this restricted diet, they continually reminded themselves in this time of testing that they were the people of God in a foreign land and that they were dependent for their food, indeed for their very lives, upon God, their creator, not King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry to disappoint you if you thought we just discovered a Christian weight loss plan in the book of Daniel. Uh, actually, I kid you not, there's a book. There's a book that was published years ago called The Daniel Diet. Some of you may have seen it. It's, how ridiculous can you get? <laughs> There's a reference to vegetables, and that's it. But the Daniel diet, I'm, I don't know if anybody's published the John the Baptist diet book, uh, Locusts and Wild Honey. So uh, any of you looking to, uh, if you've got a, a book publisher, you want to you know, try to publish a book, try the John the Baptist diet. We'll see how far you go. Anyway, this, was, uh, this is not a Christian weight loss plan. This was Daniel deciding to eat kosher food, essentially, because he did not want to def uh, defile himself. Okay. Let's look at the last few verses here. <clears throat> As for these four youths, Daniel and the other three guys, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So notice that there's a, the language there, verse 17. God gave them. So this is a gift of God. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. I mean, I imagine how Daniel's parents might have felt whenever 
you know, they're dropping off their boy at Babylon State University to get re-educated in Nebuchadnezzar's school. And they had to be, I'm sure they were pretty nervous about that. But Daniel was faithful. In fact, Daniel um, received this education as a matter of faith. And so he was educated by the Babylonians, but his interpretive grid for his education was his Jewish upbringing. He was trained, well-trained in the scriptures, um, and he was well-grounded in biblical truth. And so Daniel's view would have been that all true knowledge is the knowledge of God, because God reveals himself, and he reveals himself in particular ways. And so if he could learn something from the Babylonians, he was cool with that. But that was not taken to be the truth, that was taken to be um, something he could learn, right? And so Daniel was able to apply his Jewish faith to the education he was receiving. And so he learned what he could from them and recognized all of this education as a gift of God's common grace. That's the story. And I want to make three points uh, about this story in the rest of our time today. From the life of Daniel, and um, there are other points that I'll be making over the coming weeks, just extracting ideas and principles from the book of Daniel. Um, But we'll start with three today. But to set up this point, we have to ask a question before we get into them. And the bigger question is this, are we exiles as Christians? That's, I've been thinking about that question a good bit in the last couple of years. Are we exiles as Christians? Should we understand our place in the world as exactly the same as Daniel's, to where he's a, a man of God in this hostile culture? Are we exiles the way Daniel is in exile? Well, I'll tell you where I'm at with this question. I would say kind of yes and kind of no. So hope that helps. Let's move on. Um, No, no, kidding. Um, I'll tell you what I mean by this. So let me start with the kind of yes. So here's the kind of yes, we are exiles. Christians are exiles in the sense that we don't have a geographical homeland, right? So there's no country called Christianistan and all the Christians move there whenever they get saved. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a Christian nation because God had one covenant with one nation, and that was the nation of Israel, which is now represented by the church. So there is no national state of Christians. Let me read to you uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 1. This is a letter written to New Testament Christians. This is after the time of Christ. And Peter, um, let me just read you the the relevant portion. The the people he's addressing the letter to are the elect exiles of the dispersion. So he is calling Christians exiles, but he's calling them elect exiles and of the dispersion. So there's no Christian nation, right? Because these exiles are all these other nations. And he mentions a few nations in this verse. So there's not a particular nation where all the Christians live. And yet, they are exiles that are living in this place. They're scattered across the globe. And so we know this as Christians, that the church, Christians, can live anywhere. In any country, under any government, in any culture, we can live anywhere. Um, we We can exist in any sort of environment. That doesn't mean that all environments are equally good. We'll talk about that as we go on. Not all environments are equally good, but even in the worst of environments... Christians can, can live there, can exercise their faith there, can thrive there, um, even if it's a painful experience for them. So the kingdom of God cannot be located on a map. The kingdom of God is in the heart. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is all through the Gospels. Jesus taught this. We are born into earthly countries, but we are born again into the kingdom of God. That's the kind of yes. But kind of no. No. We're not really exiles in this sense. We are not exiles in the sense of being under God's judgment. So exile, on that graphic that I showed you earlier, that, that was a condition of exile that was imposed upon them for covenant breaking. So God was judging his people and sending them off into exile, but the exile was remedied in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Jesus came and he, he uh, ended the curse by taking that curse of, upon himself. Jesus was exiled from the Father. He was sent away. He was, he was alienated from the Father for our sake 
so that in his resurrection, he can bring reconciliation to us, between us and God. So the exile of Daniel's time was judgment, and it was remedied in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in the spiritual sense, we're not exiles. In the spiritual sense, we're the family of God. And we experience that most, uh, most fully within the, the church. So we're reconciled and redeemed by the blood of Christ and welcomed into his family. We're not under judgment, we're under grace. And Jesus has removed the curse of sin from us. So just to, just to uh, summarize here, Christians are not in exile spiritually. We're citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is within us, and we share in the victory of Christ. But Christians are in exile geographically. So these members of the kingdom of God are dispersed throughout the world in all these different countries. So now back to the question. As members of God's family, as members of the kingdom of God, how do we relate to whatever culture we happen to find ourselves in? How do we relate to our country, our nation? And since culture is intertwined with politics and with government, how are Christians supposed to relate to our nation and to our, our government? And now I'm going to be speaking to the American context through this series, but this is true. Every, every Christian in every country would have to grapple with these sort of questions. The reason why it's relevant for us is because we're feeling a shift. We're feeling changes in our cultural environment that's causing us to have, to have to ask new questions because things are not the same as they were 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. So these questions are hanging over all this whole series and they're relevant because they are driving a lot of division in the broader church. That I don't, I'm, 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 I'm talking a lot about the church outside of Christ the King, more in just the evangelical climate. Um, a lot has been written about this. If you're paying attention, there's a lot of concern about evangelicalism fracturing and breaking apart. And this sort of question is driving a lot of it. So let me give you one big caveat before I proceed with my points. Here's my caveat. I don't claim to have all the answers. And frankly, I'm still working through a lot of this myself. So um, it's, uh, it's like a, we were wanting to do this series, and this series was a bit of an excuse for me to study and reflect and look into this stuff. So um, I'm going to tell you today where I'm at, um, but I don't expect this to be the final word because we're all processing this stuff. And, and, I've, and as I've talked to different people or elders, we've had conversations, and it's been helpful because we were like, where it, these, these disagreements that happen in the culture and uh, the conversations that happen as a result help us to unlock new ways of thinking and reflecting. So I'm going to tell you today where I'm at because I see Daniel as a model of faithfulness and that's the model to follow and not Israel's model, which was assimilation and they just disappeared as a unique people. That's not our model. We want to follow Daniel's model and we can learn a lot from it. So I want to share with you where I'm at and hopefully what I have to share will be helpful as we process this together. Okay, three points. Ready? Number one, the public square is religious. The public square is religious. I want to challenge an assumption in this point that the public square is neutral and we need to keep religion out of it because a lot of people think that way. A lot of people think, well, the public square is neutral. And if you put Christianity into the public square, then it, it corrupts Christianity. It corrupts the public square. We need to keep a hard separation between, you know, politics and religion, right? But... My view is that the public square is never neutral. It never has been. It's always been religious. It's not a matter of whether or not it's religious. It's a matter of which religion is it. So we see this in the ancient times. Everybody's culture and everybody's government was religious. In Nebuchadnezzar's day, the public square was dominated by the Babylonian religion. We see this in Daniel 1. And of course, in Israel before that, you know, whenever a united nation, not the United Nations, but a united kingdom, not the United Kingdom, but they were, 
I could go on. An indivisible? No, we're, that's not it either. When it, before Israel and Judah were split up, before they had a big breakup, um, but they, their national uh, religion, they were a nation, but they were a religious nation that was a covenant nation with God. Um, and we see this even, this still exists in other countries today where, you know, different countries are dominated by different religions, Hinduism, Islam, and different countries. This, this still exists now. So in the history of our country, in the United States, the public square has largely been dominated by Christianity, historically in our country. So Christianity influenced, uh, or the influence of Christianity on our culture is undeniable. Now, that's not to say that we did it well, or that it was done accurately, that it was an accurate reflection of God's heart, or of the Christian faith. But I'm saying that, that a religious influence, of, of an influence of Christianity that was I mean, I think we could say it was pretty good, but there was a big, some big problems in it. But Christianity has, has historically influenced our culture. So we definitely got a lot of things wrong, though. So here's an example that is often cited. Some Christians supported chattel slavery back during the times of slavery. Of course, we, that's wrong. We would say that's, that is horrible. That's a, that's a sinful practice. But it's also true that Christianity was the influence that ultimately ended slavery. The moral conscience that ended slavery in the United States and in Great Britain came from Christians applying their faith to public policy. It was not a neutral public square that ended slavery. It was Christians that were prophetically speaking to their culture to say, hey, this is wrong. The way we're acting in our culture is wrong. This is not good. And that had an effect. So William Wilberforce and, uh, in Great Britain, um, Abraham Lincoln largely is credited here, uh, but those are just two figureheads, but both of them were explicitly acting upon their Christian conviction. So the tolerance and prosperity that we enjoy in our society is not despite the influence of Christianity, it's because of it. Christianity it has produced what we, the way that we live. And so some people would think, well, you don't want to mix politics and religion and that we need a neutral public square, and that's most fair and just for everyone. But a neutral public square does not have the sort of moral, and, uh, the moral tools to deal with complicated issues the way slavery was, controversial issues that, as it was at that time. You need the moral tools that Christianity can provide to be able to deal with those sort of things. And we have difficult, contentious issues in our day. And by just saying, well, Christianity needs to stay out of the public square is essentially saying, well, the most beneficial moral tools that we could use to grapple with these issues, we need to keep them off the table. And we need to just let whatever else fill the vacuum. That's not good for society. So only a public square with a Christian conscience can deal with these sort of things. And I mean, I'll just say it, Christianity gave the United States and our people, religious freedom, human dignity, women's equality, social tolerance. And if you just look across the globe, these things are unique features of the United States, and it's because of the influence of Christianity on our society. That's not to say we've done it perfectly or that there's not a lot of problems. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that this is the fruit of Christianity rightly applied within a society. Nevertheless, a lot of Christians will think something like, well, we're exiles, we're not a Christian nation, so we, we do need to keep Christianity out now. And so some of the thinking for them is that, well, engaging the culture needs to be more along uh, interpersonal and private lines. So it's, you know, it's in your price, private life, in your home, and in the church, but it doesn't need to be uh, you know, publicly implemented. And the, the thinking with this goes that, well, Christianity is at its best when we're losing. I kid you not. I saw somebody on Twitter say this the other day, and it's like a, you know, somebody with some uh, prominence uh, said something along the lines of Christians are at their best when they're losing. And I mean, I, I think I know where they're coming from, uh, but they're saying like basically Christians are better when they have no power and no influence in public life. And similarly, they'll say something like, well, Christianity is at its worst when they're in power because they end up making an idol out of it and worshiping their power. You've heard things like this. Now, if, if we apply that logic to other situations, what do we get? 
That's kind of like telling the slaves, you know what, you're better in slavery because it keeps you humble. You're more Christ-like when you're wearing chains. You're like Jesus. He wore chains. I mean, is that, should we tell a slave, don't make an idol out of your desire for freedom? Of course not. We would want, the slaves would want, hey, will you, in that time, apply the Christian faith to our situation because we're being oppressed in this situation? So Christianity was a public good in that time. So I don't think the answer is just to say, well, let's not apply our faith publicly. Now, of course, Christians can abuse power. I don't deny that. Churches can become abusive and corrupt. But that's a sin to be repented of. And the Christian faith gives us the tools to deal with that sin, doesn't it? It Tells us repent and believe the gospel. That's what we do every week. So any good thing can be made into an idol. And any good thing can be abused, but that doesn't make the thing wrong in itself. It means that the thing needs to be reformed and applied rightly. My point in all this is that the public square is religious, and that religion in public life is inevitable. It's not whether we have religion, it's which religion. So for anybody who says Christians shouldn't mix religion and politics, think again, because Christianity is political. Our mission statement, we exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. That statement, Jesus is Lord over all of life, that's a political statement because it does not just apply to personal things. It applies to our public life, the way that we live our life every day. So the public square is religious and we cannot just relegate Christianity to the private sphere. Now, somebody might say, it's like, well, that may be true in other countries, but we don't have an explicit religion in America, right? We're, we're secular, more of a secular country, and that's what we see on the rise. So Christianity has been replaced by secularism or atheism, but not another religion. And I would agree to a point that secularism is not an official religion, but I would argue that it is religious. It's a religion that worships the self. I mean, as human beings, we're created in God's image, and so we are irreducibly religious. Our, the engine of our soul was made to run on the fuel of God and the Spirit. That's who we are. We are religious beings, and so if there is no God to worship, we'll end up worshiping ourselves. So in that sense, secularism is a religion. It's a religion of irreligion. It's worshiping the God of self. But there's another expression of this, and that is a public expression of this. Now, Francis Schaeffer... Um, it's a man with a girl's name. <laughs> uh, sorry if your name is Francis, guys, uh, but Francis Schaefer. Um, here's what he said once. He said, if there is no God above the state, then the state is your God. I think that's a very keen insight. So in secular religion, there's no God to worship. So you end up worshiping yourself and you end up worshiping the biggest and most powerful thing that, that you can find. And that's going to be the state. That's going to be the collection of all people that are self-worshippers. And secularism is the dominant religion of America. It's a bad one. <laughs> it doesn't lead to more prospering. Uh, it, is, it makes our society less free and less just. Okay, so here's my second point. Uh, secularism is a religion. I've already introduced this, but let's flesh this out some more. The religion of secularism works its way through culture um, by attaching itself to a Christian idea, by mimicking Christian forms and rituals and beliefs. So it's parasitic in that way. It'll attach itself to something Christian and then uh, propagate itself um, culturally that way. So if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that there are religious elements and words that sort of poke through our culture all over the place. And it's not merely just a vestige of Christianity. I mean, I think it is, these are, I think they're arguably religious expressions. So here's, a, here's an example. Um, after the Capitol Hill riots last January 6th, a year ago, um, Nancy Pelosi was giving a speech about a police officer who was killed. Now listen to the language from this quote. She said, each day when members enter the Capitol, this temple of democracy, religious word, we will remember his sacrifice. That's religious. People entered our temple of democracy. They defiled our temple. It was desecrated. But this 
one man gave his life as a sacrifice for others. I mean, it's kind of, it kind of sounds that way, at least. I don't know exactly if that's what she did, but it kind of sounds that way. Here's another example. Um, I walk around my neighborhood, my wife and I with our dog, and uh, I'll see some of these yard signs in people's yards. And so here's, uh, here's one of them. I mean, listen to this language. It's undeniably religious. In this house, we will serve the Lord. No, that's not what it says. In this house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. Do you know what you call that? It's a creed. <laughs> so we've got the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Apostolic Creed, and the Woke Creed, or whatever you'd call this thing. But it, it's a creed. I mean, this is, it, we believe. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly Latin for creed but, or for belief, but it's something creo or something. <laughs> it's like related to the Latin word for creed or for belief. It's like, this is a creed. And you'll notice that a lot of these uh, signs are rainbow colored, which is a covenant sign that God gave to Noah that he would no longer destroy the earth. The secular religion does have a belief system, and these are some shared convictions that are held by all of its adherents. Now, these can be summed up in four beliefs. These four beliefs are widely held in society, and this is the spirit of the modern age. I want to um, cite a Tim Keller talk. Um, I have a, a few things I want to say about this. But in this Tim Keller talk, he was making observations and summarizing what he would believe are kind of the core beliefs of the secular religion. Number one, be true to yourself. Number two, you can live however you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. Number three, no one can tell you how to live or what's right or wrong. Number four, in the long run, you got to do what makes you happy. Does that sound familiar? Of course it's familiar because you've been hearing that storyline in Disney movies for the past 30 years. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is our secular religion. This is how we believe. Now, and these beliefs, they kind of come through through our culture. Our literature, you know, like Daniel had the language and the literature. It's like in our day, we have other forms of media. But culture kind of is where this worldview and religion is embedded. So we see it in movies, TV, commercials, marketing, social media. And these aren't merely the private beliefs of a few people. This is a secular gospel. And there's a form of evangelism that takes place. That's why people put their creed in their front lawn. They're evangelizing. Saying, this is true. This is what's real. This is what I believe. We believe this in this house. That's a dogmatic religious sort of commitment. But for them, I, I think they're not really seen as beliefs. They often operate at more of a precognitive level. It's, it's, a, it's at the a level of unquestioned assumptions. These are just axiomatic truths that we don't even need to... to, to these four things I mentioned from Keller, these things are, are not things that we have to articulate as assertions. It's just, of course they're true. Of course that's what's real. But all four of those beliefs are secular and antithetical to the gospel because they worship self as the ultimate authority. And furthermore, these beliefs are the governing paradigm for pretty much everyone under the age of 30. Now that's what Keller said. Everybody under the age of 30, that's pretty much the belief system they bring to the table. So here's a question that I'll raise and not answer, because I don't have an answer. And Keller and his talk, he didn't have an answer either, so that's comforting. How do you evangelize people like this? He said, like, a lot of people don't have the mental furniture to be able to even comprehend the gospel. So how do we evangelize people that that is their operating assumption? It means it's, it's not going to be quite so simple and straightforward. At least we can... We can uh, we can assume that, that it's not going to be that easy. Keller also talked about the way people conceive of truth and feelings have changed. So he said, in the past, the way everybody believed is that truth is out there somewhere. And in here are my feelings. So the way I grow as a person is by lining up my feelings with the truth that's out there. And he said that this was commonly accepted. Other religions would teach the same thing. They just had a different truth that they were promoting. But everybody believed the truth is out there and I need to line up with it. Now the equation is flipped on its head. People believe that the truth is in here. And out there are culturally constructed feelings. 
So everybody out there needs to grow by affirming and aligning themselves to my personal truth. That's the way it is now. Is that not, is that not the way it is? Now, in my observation, a lot of Christians believe this way because those beliefs are deeper and more foundational than Scripture. So be kind of like Daniel, starting with a Babylonian education and then adding Jewish faith on top of it. And I think, of course, you're going to end up, you're not going to hold to your Jewish beliefs in that environment. But for Daniel, his, his Jewish beliefs were underneath his Babylonian education, and the Babylonian education was, was built on top of that, and he was able to discern better because he had already been grounded in Scripture. But a lot of Christians are losing their unique identity because of this and becoming more like Babylon. They're trying to attach their Christianity on top of these core assumptions that are still in place. So Keller, here's a, here's a quote. He said, because of this understanding of truth inside and feelings outside, all moral values in our culture are relative. All relationships are now transactional. All authority is suspect. And all social institutions are being undermined. And then here's the kicker. And the younger you go down, the harder it is to get anybody to be loyal to anything. Essentially, it's like, you know, these things are true in the broader culture, but it is true to a greater degree in the younger generation. He cited a study where the majority of kids under 25 spend four hours a day on social media. And 25% of them, of those people, spend eight or more hours on social media every day. And so uh, here, here's a blunt statement from Keller. He said, the world is now catechizing your kids. And it's interesting that he used that language because that's religious language. There's a catechism of secularism. Catechism, you know, like, what is my only hope in life and death? Jesus Christ and so on. It's like it's a, it's, it's a format to kind of drill truth into a young heart and into an old heart. Um, but so, and he said, like, the world is catechizing our kids with these other kind of influences. All right, let me, uh, let me move down to my third point. Secularism is being enforced by the state. Secularism is enforced by the state. This was Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. He said, well, make them citizens of Babylon through the coerced power of the state. Literally, steal them from their land, bring them back to Babylon, and plug them into my program. And so when you combine the power of the state, the influence of culture, and the education of youth... That's very potent. You win the future that way. Within a generation or two, anybody who is plugged into that system, they will, un they will lose their unique religious identity. Now, as I already mentioned, that's exactly what happened to the northern kingdom. So I mentioned there was Israel in the north, Judea in the south, or Judah in the south. The northern kingdom, conquered in 722 BC, carried off into, uh, into Assyrian exile. They disappeared. There, uh, the only vestiges of them that remain in the New Testament is we know them as Samaritans because they intermarried with um, the Assyrians. And so they, they lost their unique identity and pretty much, you know, they, they ceased to exist as a unique people. Interestingly, the Jewish people still exist to this day because they've, they've become so, so strong at maintaining their, their identity. And Daniel was part of that. Daniel had um, somehow learned to retain his unique Jewish identity. And, of course, the, 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 the people that were part of this, they retained their identity until the time of Christ. Whenever Jesus was born, um, we know the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have the Essenes. We have these uh, you know, Jewish people. There was this whole um, environment that was still uniquely Jewish. They, they were dispersed into this Roman captivity now. But they had a unique identity. And we can learn from the book of Daniel how to follow that pattern. So I want to talk in the, um, in the coming weeks. I want to say a, a, another comment or two here. But it's kind of a preview of what we'll get to later. Um, but Daniel and his friends learned how to resist. And that's a key part of, of what they did. Now, we've, we, what, I, what I want to say here is that just that we need to develop a theology of resistance in our church. How do we do it? When do we do it? Uh, under what circumstances? What does it look like? But a theology of resistance. Now, we, we've talked about resistance in the personal sense in the past, 
like resistance of personal sin, personal temptation. We haven't really talked much about resistance from external pressures to conform when we feel like we don't have a choice. We haven't talked about that very much. And so that's, that's something that I want to introduce here briefly, but we'll develop it further. But the idea is that there will be, there, there are at work now, and will continue to be, in my opinion, in the future, attempts to coerce Christians to behave in a way that will violate our consciences. And so if not from the government, um, it could be in a workplace. You know, maybe you feel like your job would be threatened if you don't comply with X, Y, or Z policy in your workplace. Um, or through some other form of social pressure. But a theology of resistance, I think, would be helpful for our church. Now, for Daniel, it all began when he decided to, decided to resist the food requirement, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that he could have resisted, um, and we don't exactly know. Um, but he said the food thing. I want to draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to comply with this particular requirement. For his own reasons, that was a battle worth fighting, knowing that he could pay a price for it. I mean, you don't just outright defy the king. Um, and he wasn't doing it to be rebellious. We don't sense at all that there's rebellion. It's like he was very polite and respectful. He asked for an exemption as a matter of conscience. And it worked for him. Now, here in Daniel chapter 1, we see him resisting in something small. It's a small thing, food. The king's food, who wouldn't want that? But for Daniel, it's like, hey, I don't want the king's food. I want these vegetables, the Daniel diet. <laughs> but he resisted in something small, but that small resistance kind of sets the stage for larger resistance that occur later in the book. Daniel and the lion's den, you know, the, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. You know, we know these stories because there were stories of resistance to more of a tyrannical type of coercion and God's people said, no, we're not going to do that. So um, just as an example, on uh, Friday, the Supreme Court heard arguments about the uh, Joe Biden, or Biden administration vaccine mandate. Um, and the arguments were that the plaintiffs that brought the case against the uh, Biden administration were arguing that it violated their conscience to be coerced into taking a medical treatment. Um, they said it violated their consciences because the government didn't have a right to mandate that. Now, some people might think, what's the big deal? I mean, it's a shot. You don't want COVID, do you? Get the shot, move on with your life, you know? It's for the public good. But, you know, somebody may have said the same thing to Daniel. Daniel, what's the big deal? It's, it's fine dining, dude. Eat the king's food and go on with your life, you know? <laughs> Enjoy it. But in both cases, there was a government decree and you had an individual believer that felt that it violated their conscience and they chose to resist. And they also chose that doing so would, they knew that it would, it could cost them something to resist. So what do we do about this? I mean, like, personally, um, I'm not against the vaccine. I'm thankful for it. We prayed for it last year. I'm thankful we have a medical treatment for COVID. Um, so no problem with the vaccine. And, um, and I think Christians should be able to, you know, freely get it. But I think it's wrong to coerce people to get it because not everybody shares the same conviction about vaccines. And this is a, a matter that predates COVID. So it's not as though people just all of a sudden decided they didn't uh, like it. It's like there's a tradition here and Christianity respects individual conscience. Secular religion does not. Secular religion demands compliance, period. Christianity respects individual conscience, which means that some Christians will be prepared to put up a, a roadblock. I'm like, I'm not going to comply with that. Now, we'll learn in the book of Daniel how to do that respectfully, how to do that, you know, in a, in a God-honoring way, because it's not about picking fights. That, it's not about being rebellious. It's about protecting one's individual conscience. So we see in Daniel a great example of submitting to authority, but also resisting when necessary. I know there's a thing in the Bible called Romans 13 calling us to submit to the government. I, I agree with that. But the government can't dictate everything in your life and we just cite Romans 13 as the excuse for it. There has to be some things we say, the state doesn't get to dictate to me how I live my faith. Jesus is Lord over my heart. Jesus is Lord over my body. And so I, there are some places where I just cannot comply. So um, that's a matter that we will get into in a, in a few weeks. So let me just wrap it up here. 
We've got some ideas to explore more in depth, and what we'll find in, in this book is that Daniel is one of the most godly men in the Bible, truly, a man who is faithful throughout, and what we also see is his exile was not a slave in chains riding away in a dungeon, but God put him in a position of power and authority to exercise influence for the good of people, for the protection of God's people. Esther did the same thing. Um, and we saw Joseph do this in the book of Genesis. There's a tradition here of God placing people in positions of authority in secular governments for the good of people. So we'll, we'll be able to explore that some more. But the stories in the book of Daniel have encouraged countless Christians through the ages and inspired many veggie tales. Um, I don't know if I can ever think of Nebuchadnezzar again without thinking of the chocolate bunny. The bunny, the bunny. Oh, uh, Jason, can we, uh, we'll, we'll sing that. Uh, kidding. Um, no, the, the thread that runs through the book is that God's in control over nations, kings, and rulers, and powers. He's bigger than anything in the world. He is, he is the supreme sovereign, and to him we owe ultimate allegiance. Daniel overcame in that environment, and so can we. God sustains his people by carrying them safely through trials and exile and preserving their faith until at last Jesus Christ stepped on the scene to bring exile to an end and gather up his people to bring them home. All right? Well, let's pray, and we'll continue with our service. Thank you, Father, um, for the faithfulness of Daniel that you preserved him in the midst of a difficult environment and through so much change. And Father, um, I, I pray that over the next five or six weeks that you will help give us clarity uh, theologically and just how to think, give us categories to think about. I pray that you'll give us fruitful conversations with one another as we consider um, some of the themes that we're discussing here. Lord, I pray that you will, um, that this will be something that will sharpen us. And I, and I pray for myself. I pray that you will sharpen me and help me, Lord, as I study and reflect and um, have conversations with people, Lord. Help me, Lord, to, um, to be able to be helpful and to, uh, to bring these things into our conversation in ways that are edifying and fruitful and uh, can help us think biblically with um, truly a humble heart that will, um, that will help us just to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and being faithful to you above all else. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel that our exile has been addressed by your death, burial, and resurrection. We give you all glory. Pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.